Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Matthew 5, 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Love for enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And even if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Yes, thanks be to God. Uh, good to be back with you. For those of you that were here last week, we had uh, some last-minute changes with me being sick, and I have to honestly say I genuinely missed being here, and thank you for all those who stepped up uh, last week. Good to be feeling healthy again. Uh, for those of you that um, have, you know, of course, you've either had COVID or you've had the flu or whatever it might be, you get to this point in the middle of your sickness where you forget what it's like to feel good. Uh, I definitely hit that, and so it's definitely feeling good uh, to be back to be back with you. Uh, John Stott, the uh, well-known theologian, rightly said about this passage from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said that nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinctiveness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling. That's a big claim about this passage, and even as you heard it read, I would imagine that probably resonates for many of us. Now, today we're going to be continuing on in our series that we started back in the fall of last year called Thy Kingdom Come. We have been looking at Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God, and today, in this passage, Jesus confronts us with a jarring proposition that Christians ought to embody a love that is so radical that it stands out profoundly in countercultural ways. And so what I want to do is I want to just jump right into this passage, and I want to consider this love that Jesus puts in front of us by first considering our command to love, second, our failure to love, and then finally, our forgotten love. And just a fair warning, uh, my first point is much, much longer than the other two, so if you start getting freaked out at how long that point lasts, just don't fret, okay? I timed it well, I promise. So first, let's consider our command to love. So in our passage, uh, Jesus confronts our understanding of love. And if we're not careful, I think we might misunderstand him. But if we pay close attention to what he's saying, we will see a, a radicalness to what Jesus is proposing. Let me reread for us again verse 38. Jesus says, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye 
and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that opening statement, you have heard it said, matters to the context of Jesus' command in this passage. This notion of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth is rooted in ancient Israel's uh, legal practices. The actual eye for an eye reference comes from places like Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 19, Leviticus 24. And understand that the law of God was certainly a moral law. It was, it was designed to help guide one's uh, life in personal morality, but it was also a civil law. There were aspects of the law of God in the Old Testament, specifically in those passages, where God is giving to Israel how they ought to act as a nation. And these references in the Old Testament are in that context of civil law. The law and the principles, were these were given to the judges of Israel, this notion of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And it was a way of guiding how the judges doled out punishment for crimes that occurred within the nation. Now, this civil law of Israel was actually pretty unique among many other nations of the ancient Near East because it put limits on the kind of retribution that was allowed by the government of the time. Uh, it's it, the, uh, the principle that we see here is the notion of exact retribution. In many contexts, for example, at the time, if I stole something from you, you could kill me as a result. You know, or if you killed my brother, I could kill your whole family and burn down your village. And God saw this kind of over-the-top retribution as completely inappropriate, and so God puts limits on the kind of retribution that could be legally allowed within the nation. However, this principle was primarily for the courts, but there were those who had taken that idea out of the courts and instead used it as a means of personal vengeance. Right? There were those who used it as a justification for vigilante justice. If you wronged me, well, I would just come to your home and I would wrong you. And Jesus says, no. On an individual level, that absolutely should not be how we ought to respond. And he goes on in verse 39, and he says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And then he goes on in verse 23. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is a high call of how we ought to interact with those we might view as opponents or as enemies. Now, I also realize that there are some who might take this statement to mean that we should then just allow evil to happen when it happens. I've actually heard uh, critics of Christianity try and set up these, like, gotcha moments for Christians by saying, you're just, you're, all you Christians are just inconsistent when you want to see justice because Jesus says that you should just turn the other cheek. But is that what Jesus is saying? That we should just allow injustices to occur, turning the other cheek. Well, that's not at all what he's saying. In fact, there are examples of Jesus himself challenging those who treat him unjustly. As an example, 
In John 18, Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin on trial for, claim, for the claims that he's made about himself. And they're questioning him at this trial. And when he responds to them with an answer that they do not like, they slap him. And Jesus' response is interesting. Jesus responds to the slap by saying, he does not, well, actually, let me say what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, thank you for slapping me, and then turns the other cheek and says, hey, can you slap this one too? Instead, what we see Jesus say in that chapter, verse 23, he says, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? I always found that interaction interesting, given what Jesus is saying here. Why does Jesus not take his own advice to just turn the other cheek? Why does he challenge the fact that he was just slapped? I mean, Jesus here, in other words, he, Jesus is saying it's not okay to just abuse someone, to allow injustices to go unchallenged. So what exactly is Jesus doing here? Well, one of the people who most thoroughly Understand, understood this balance between Jesus' command to love our enemies and the necessity of standing against injustice when it occurs was Dr. Martin Luther King. It's quite providential, I think, that of all weeks, this is the week that we are looking at this passage being this weekend, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, tomorrow being Martin Luther, uh, Luther King Jr. Day, but Dr. King actually preached a phenomenal sermon on this passage back in 1957. It's called Loving Your Enemies, and I would highly commend it to you as maybe a way to celebrate tomorrow, uh, to read through that sermon. And in that sermon, he is discussing this very point of how do we take Jesus' words seriously about love in the midst of injustice? How do we go about loving those perpetuating injustice? And Dr. King, he, as he only he can do, he lays out various thoughts and he says, you know, for some oppressed people, they use violence against oppression. But he says, that's not the way that it should be. And then he goes on and he says this. We wanna, I'm going to read for you a little bit of an extended quote that we'll throw up for you to follow along. But this is what he said. So he says, one, you know, one way that people go is to uh, use uh, violence against oppression. He said another way is to acquiesce and to give in, to resign yourself to the oppression. Some people do that. They discover the difficulties of the wilderness moving into the promised land, and they would rather go back to the despots of Egypt because it's difficult to get in the promised land. And they so resign themselves to the fate of oppression. They somehow acquiesce to this thing. But that too isn't the way because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. But there is another way. And that is to organize mass nonviolent resistance based on the principle of love. It seems to me that this is the only way as our eyes look to the future. As we look out across the years and across the generations, let us develop and move right here. We must discover the power of love, the power, the redemptive power of love. And when we discover that, we will be able to make this world, this old world, a new world. We will be able to make men better. Love is the only way. 
See, what Jesus is saying and what Dr. King realized is that love is a posture that we must have toward those who mistreat us. We must be different than the world's posture, which often either assumes violence or is just passive to the injustices that occur. And here is what I think can best summarize the difference that I think will be helpful for all of us. The main distinction is the difference between a desire for justice and a desire for vengeance. Those are two very different things. A desire for justice is a desire for a person to be held accountable for their actions under the law, proportional to the crime. The kind of thing that we were discussing earlier about uh, Israel's ancient laws. But a desire for revenge or a desire for vengeance is a desire to hurt someone because they hurt you. And that is a very important distinction. And as King noted, love is what will shift your heart from vengeance to justice. Once that heart posture is present, not only does it keep us from not wanting to seek revenge, but it also produces in us a really strange desire to serve and even care for even our enemies. Uh, Anna Case Winters, she wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew. Uh, she's looking at this portion of scripture, and I think she actually helps make a really important distinction uh, where she's basically describing what's, what's being described here is not a, a posture of, of a passive victim allowing injustice to befall them, but instead, what she says is that what we're seeing here is an agent who asserts power in a way that is positive and unconventional. And what she does is she gives this example. Uh, she says that at the time, representatives of Rome were legally allowed to conscript or, or forced civilians to carry their gear for up to a mile. Rather than begrudging this imposition, Jesus is inviting his followers to generously go an extra mile. Instead of using their rights, using their power, as it were, to quit after one mile, the whole notion is that we ought to go above and beyond for the, for the good of the one who even at, the, at that moment seems to be inflicting some kind of injustice. The point is simply this is that perpetual victimhood that lacks justice is not what's being described here. Justice is someone being held accountable, but true justice is allowing a posture of love toward our enemies, even to the point of caring for them, going the extra mile for them. As I think about that, I think about how incredibly hard that idea would be in the midst of interacting with, dealing with someone who would be viewed as an opponent or an enemy. But a couple examples of this came to mind, very tangible, very real examples came to mind. The first one that came to mind was the strike of this kind of striking distinction was what took place following the horrific murders uh, in Charleston by Dylan Roof at Emanuel AME. If you remember, Roof was a white supremacist who murdered nine people at a Bible study, people who had just welcomed him warmly. 
And though there were mixed responses after that horrific day, the daughter of one of the victims, when she had an opportunity to speak to Ruth, said this. She said, I forgive you. You took something really precious to me. I will never talk to my mother ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. Have mercy on your soul. What is that? Well, that is not an attempt to dissuade justice, that's for sure. He must be held accountable. But it is a posture of mercy toward the perpetuator of injustice that's rooted in love. Another powerful example that came to mind was the aftermath of the Amish shooting back in 2006, if you remember that day. A man walked into an Amish schoolhouse and murdered five children inside, after which he killed himself, leaving behind his wife and his three children. Now, days after they buried their children, do you remember where the Amish parents went? Well, they went to the burial of the man who just murdered their children. They embraced the wife of the man who had just murdered their children. They raised money and gave it to the family of the man who murdered their children. This, my friends, is the posture that Jesus is describing. This is going the extra mile out of love. See, revenge is wanting to hurt Dylan Roof so that he feels the pain that he's caused. Revenge is the Amish parents wanting the widow to experience the same sorrow that they are feeling as a result of having lost their children. But Jesus calls his people to something greater. He calls his people to mercy and compassion and love, even while pursuing justice. Now, I can imagine, again, for many of us, as we hear this kind of radical love, we likely realize the depths of our own failure to live in that way. Of course, I'm providing extreme examples, but this happens absolutely on a continuum. And I think if we're honest, we recognize this kind of love is something we are regularly failing at accomplishing. And so we have to address our failure to love and the reasons why often we fail to live this way. Now, when I say we, I think it's important to address who I mean by we, that we fail at doing this. We can mean us individually, for sure. It can mean we, maybe as a church locally, maybe we as Christians, for those of you that are, would consider yourself a Christian, maybe it's a capital church kind of thing, Christians. Maybe we could even relate to society at large. And the words of Jesus have something to say to each one of those categories. I mean, just consider even societally. You know, these passages are often at the center of debates for Christians on issues at, at the government level, issues of, you know, related to punishment of crimes, like the death penalty. You know, many Christians debate the, the entire validity of being involved in any kind of war and whether or not the concept of what's known as a just war theory can be justified. And they often use these passages to defend um, being anti 
war. Christians debate the line between, you know, Romans 13, which speaks of submission to governing authorities and the need to still confront unjust governing authorities. And all of those things, they're really important issues that are complex and require a lot of nuance. I have a lot of opinions on all of those, but I actually don't want to spend time on those today. The only thing that I want us to today at least be able to walk away with is not so much the we as a society at large. I want us individually, personally, I want us as a church to be confronted by these words of Jesus. Because for those who call themselves Christians, God calls us to a much higher standard of love than what the world may most naturally fall into. And so for us, what does it look like for us as people, as individuals, to embody a radical kind of love that is completely countercultural? You know, I think when I think about Christians by and large, I think about us individually, I think about the church maybe more broadly, I think it's fair to say that oftentimes this kind of radical love is not what we're actually known for. And that's unfortunate because this is the opportunity that Christians have to present to the world a love that is absolutely transforming because you cannot find it elsewhere. And so as I process, what what does that look like? I mean, what does it mean for us to maybe begin processing what this looks like uh, on a practical level? I started thinking about a whole bunch of different things that we could do. But what I thought we would do instead is for the next few moments, let's put some questions in front of us. Some questions that we can utilize as a way of wrestling through whether or not we are sufficiently Christian, sufficiently embodying this kind of love that Jesus calls us to. Again, while I I maybe have my own answers to these questions, I'll just pose them as questions for us to consider. In our current context, that being American Christianity, are Christians known for extending paradigm-shifting, countercultural mercy and compassion on those who might be opponents or might otherwise be viewed as enemies? Is that something that we're known for? Are Christians known for laying down their rights or their power or influence in order that they might go the extra mile above and beyond what is required of them in order to show radical love? Are Christians known as those who seek and demand justice that keeps perpetrators of injustice accountable wherever injustice might occur? I mean, are Christians known for that kind of radical love or... Do the words of Jesus in verse 46 and 47 more resonate? That Christians are known really for only loving those who love them, only greet those and welcome those who are like them, who think like them, believe like them. And if that's the case, in Jesus' words, what good is that? Don't even the pagans do that? Now, maybe to make it even more granular, what about you? What about me? Do you reflect this kind of love that Jesus is presenting? Do I reflect this kind of love that Jesus is, ref- uh, Jesus is presenting to us? I mean, and just so that we're clear, the answer to that question 
is not found amongst those with whom we agree or with those who are like us or those who love us. The answer to that question is to be found amongst those with whom we disagree. It's found amongst those with whom we have conflict or amongst those who take advantage of us or slander us, those who owe us nothing and who benefit us nothing. What do they say about the way that we love? Do they see us as those willing to seek justice, not revenge, as those willing to go the extra mile for their good, to love those who even persecute us? The answer to the question about whether or not we embody this kind of love is found amongst our enemies, not amongst our friends. And I know I am not enough like that, for sure. I bet, if you're honest, you probably aren't known enough like that as well. I know the church right now is not known primarily for that. We fail to live this kind of radical love, and as a result, we fail to reflect the kingdom of God rightly. And too often, as a result, we are no better than the pagans. And do you know why? I think it's because we don't actually trust Jesus when he tells us that compassion and mercy and love and laying down of ourselves are actual virtues in the kingdom. We still believe to varying degrees that vengeance ought to be ours. That if I am mocked, mistreated, or slandered, that the only course of action is to respond in kind. That if you are my enemy, you ought to be defeated, not loved, rejected, not prayed for. And my friends, that is the natural way of things. There is nothing special about living that way. And we will not be able to love in this way with this kind of radical love that Jesus puts before us unless we see that this is the exact kind of love with which we have been loved. Christian, if you are here, you have been loved with that kind of love, that kind of radical love. And if we are not living in that kind of way, it's because, finally, I think we have forgotten our love explain to you what I mean. In Revelation uh, 1 through 4, there are these letters written to seven different churches. And one of those churches uh, is the church in Ephesus. Now, the church in Ephesus is actually a really interesting case study uh, in New Testament theology, because what you see is in the book of Acts, you see the planting of this church, this church in uh, Ephesus, and it just, it grows, and it flourishes, Within that church, you then begin to see how it grows and develops by looking at the book of Ephesians, which is, of course, a letter that Paul writes to this church. And within that church, what you're seeing is this overflowing love that they have for one another. And that love is actually then spilling out into this hostile pagan context that surrounded them. It's really a remarkable, again, case study of church planting. But then, in Revelation 2... We see the Lord speaking to this church in Ephesus, and we see a really concerning turn in the history of that church, because what we see in that letter is that, that while they are commended for their ability to hold true to faithful doctrine against the pagan ideologies of the day, and so in that sense, they had kept themselves pure. 
But after this commendation, the Lord then says to them in verse 4, he said, yet I hold this against you. You have forgotten the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. This passage always strikes me. The love they forsook was the love first given to them by Christ. And as a result, they no longer lived in a way that they once had. And my friends, I fear that too often the same is happening with us. We have forgotten our first love, and as a result, we no longer love like Jesus loved us. You know, maybe some of us, we have become very well-versed in doctrine. And this, was, this is the call to the Ephesians. You have been good at doctrine. We have been faithful at maybe keeping ourselves pure against the pagan influences of the day. Yet Jesus comes, and he says, you've forgotten the love that you had at first. Maybe for others, you're here. And you've maybe never fully grasped or understood the love of Christ. And as a result, everything that I've said today seems really interesting, but it's never really transformed you. And so as a result, this kind of radical love doesn't seem possible at all. My friends, if we're here and we are not loving in radical kinds of ways... The ways that Jesus is describing, it's likely because we have forgotten or have never known the radical love with which we've been loved. And so, my friends, for a moment, hear about this radical love of Jesus. Be enthralled by it once again. Because Jesus Christ, he did not use his power or take up his rights as the Son of God when persecuted. But rather, as the scriptures tell us, like a lamb to the slaughter, he remained silent before his accusers. And why did he do that? He did that so that he might go the extra mile for us to lay down his life for those who did nothing to deserve it. And on top of that, Jesus Christ did not lay down his life for those who loved him, but rather, according to Romans 5, we were enemies of God. Christ reconciled us to the Father while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Would you remember the prayer of Jesus when he's hanging on the cross? While mocked as he is being tortured to death. You remember his prayer? His prayer is to look upon his torturers and say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Do you not see? Jesus is the love that does not resist evil persons, as we hear in our passage. For if he did, he would resist us. Jesus is the one who does not just turn the other cheek, but rather lays down his entire life for us. He is the one who does not just clothe us with a shirt, like we see in verse 40. He clothes us with his perfect righteousness. Jesus loved his enemies in radical and profound ways. And those enemies were you and I. Have we forgotten this kind of radical love? If we have, come back to your first love. 
I don't care how much doctrine or theology we may feel like we've mastered. It means nothing if we have not embraced and remembered and been transformed by this first love. Let the love of Jesus make us a people who love radically. This is the love of God in Christ, my friends. This is the love that draws us near. This is that first love that now compels us to now go in love. And I'll simply end on this note. I'm tired. I am tired of the ways in my own life I don't love like I should. I'm tired of seeing brothers and sisters in Christ who are regularly rejecting this kind of love in the way that they love others. I'm tired of the excuses that inevitably come for our lack of love that exists, a lack of compassion, a lack of empathy for those who might otherwise be considered opponents or enemies. I'm tired of the arrogance and the self-assuredness that pervades so much of Christianity today that assumes ourselves righteous, never recognizing the arrogance and the self-assuredness that has made us unrighteous people. I'm just, I'm tired of seeing this in myself. I'm tired of seeing this in the church. And may the Spirit of God break it in us, crush it in us. May we remember this beautiful, glorious, radical love of Jesus that has made us children of God, So that now, as children of God, people of his kingdom, we might go into a world with this radical kind of love in a countercultural way that it might be a testimony of the glories of the kingdom of God. May it be so in us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you loved us when we were yet enemies Christ died for us. God, you loved us first. And it is for that reason and that reason alone that the words of Jesus in our passage ought to not seem impossible or foreign. We should read those words of Jesus and they should be familiar. That familiarity should come because it's the way that you have loved us. And so, God, if we have forgotten, like those in Ephesus, if we have forgotten that love, God, remind us of it. By your spirit, remind us of it. Break in us whatever idolatry needs to be broken so that we can once again be enthralled by that love. And, Lord, would you, as a result, make us a people who love in profound ways, in this world of division, in a world more accustomed to hate, would you make us a people who are countercultural in love in radical kinds of ways? Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We need the power of your spirit to accomplish it. So God, would you do it? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.